long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. The government. Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Eric Posner, the Kirkland and Ellis Distinguished Service Professor of Law at the University of Chicago. I've been following his work for well, quite a while now, and back in 2018, I actually had the opportunity to talk with his co-author, Glenn Weil, on the podcast about their book, Radical Markets. Today, Professor Posner and I discuss his latest book, How Antitrust Failed Workers. Eric Posner, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. So I thought... What would maybe make the most sense would be to start off by not talking about labor markets, which is the focus of your book, but actually about product markets. Because as you point out really throughout the book, product markets and allegations of monopolistic practices in those markets, well, those have gotten a lot more attention than issues that you're highlighting involving labor and wages. So to start with, can you explain what constitutes a monopoly and why monopolies are usually thought to be fairly undesirable. So when we talk about product markets, we mean uh, markets for the sales of goods and services like automobiles or today, you know, using uh, Google's search engine or, uh, or Facebook's uh, interface. And a monopoly uh, literally means that a single firm sells all the goods and services in a particular market. So back in the 19th century, if you wanted to buy oil, you bought it from uh, Standard Oil. Today, if you want to um, use a search engine, you'll use uh, Google's search engine. Uh, In practice, we use the term monopoly a little bit more loosely than uh, referring to 100% of the market. We generally just mean a very large uh, fraction of the market, you know, 90%, 80% something like that. Um, A famous monopolist was Microsoft, and and I think still is to some extent. If you own uh, a a non-Apple PC, you almost certainly will have to use Microsoft's operating system. Um, And um, monopolies are generally thought to be undesirable because uh, they can charge a higher price than what would prevail in a competitive market. So if you take something like um, automobiles, if there's just a single car manufacturer, uh, people have no other option if they want to buy a car except to use that manufacturer. So the manufacturer can charge a very high price. If there's competition in the automobile industry, the the, uh, car manufacturers will bid each other down in order to obtain more uh, buyers. And that only that not only reduces prices, but of course increases output. Uh, more people get cars; they pay less. That's good for uh, the economy. And let me just add uh, one other point, which is in antitrust law, we are concerned not just about monopolies, but also cartels. And the cartel just means a small number of large firms. So uh, let's say the airline industry has basically four big firms, the domestic airline industry. And uh, that's also sometimes called an oligopoly. Uh, And if the four airlines got together and agreed to fix prices, then they would form a cartel, which is also illegal. And for the same reason that uh, monopolies are uh, undesirable, which is that they can raise prices and reduce output, causing harm to 
society uh, generally. Um, I should also add, by the way, that while cartels are illegal, flat out illegal, monopolies are not illegal if they're obtained um, through innovation or you know just out competing everybody else. The the a monopoly a monopolist engages in illegal behavior only if it takes certain types of competitive action anti competitive actions that prevent other people from entering into the market so that uh, it loses its monopoly. So if it maintains its monopoly in certain um, illegal ways, then uh, then it can pay a penalty. When I think about monopolies and antitrust and all the things you mentioned, two pieces of legislation stand out in my mind, the Sherman Act of 1890 and the Clayton Act of 1914. And I, I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about the importance of those pieces of legislation and just sort of broadly what these what what these laws prohibit, what sort of practices they prohibit. The Sherman Act is the original antitrust uh, statute in the United States. Um, and it was uh, it's actually called antitrust because at the time monopolies used the trust form, the legal form of a trust in order to, um, you know, in order to structure themselves. Uh, for various reasons. So the, the Sherman Act is really the essential original law that everybody refers to. Um, ironically, it wasn't really enforced in the first 10 years or so of its existence. The, the courts gutted it uh, using um, uh, fairly aggressive interpretations. And so um, only when uh, Teddy Roosevelt entered office uh, and later Taft and, and Woodrow Wilson did uh, the Sherman Act really get enforced the way it was supposed to be against uh, monopolists? Um, interestingly, early on, the main successes that people had using the Sherman Act was against unions rather than large corporations. The Clayton Act, uh, enacted under Wilson, along with the FTC Act of 1914, was basically just designed to strengthen the antitrust laws. And um, various uh, other statutes uh, since then have been enacted, which, you know, have incrementally um, strengthened the antitrust laws. But the basic structure of antitrust law can be traced back to Sherman, the Sherman Act. And very broadly, there are uh, two main sections of the Sherman Act, Section 1 and Section 2. Section 1 um, makes uh, any kind of restraint of trade illegal. And that's basically been interpreted to mean something like a cartel, a couple firms getting together, entering into an agreement to fix prices or to, uh, you know, create a monopoly. Um, Section two is focused uh, on monopolies. And basically, it makes it illegal for um, an existing monopoly to engage in actions that strengthen or extend or maintain its monopoly. It also makes it illegal for firms to create monopolies in the first uh, place if they if they don't do so in, in normal ways, like through innovation and regular uh, market activity. And, and so I, I think a, this is where maybe we can come into the idea of monop monopsony. It sometimes doesn't flow trippingly off my tongue here, but because as you point out in the book, uh, the, the, these, this legislation doesn't really distinguish between monopoly and, mono and monopsony. And I think this is maybe a point for you to explain to everyone what exactly a, a monopsony is and why that's sort of thought to be undesirable. So a monopsony is just uh, a monopoly in a mirror. It's 
So a monopolist sells into a market. It's a seller. There's a single seller who sells um, goods or services to multiple consumers or other buyers. A monopsonist is a single buyer who uh, buys from um, multiple sellers. Uh, now, monopsony can refer to goods and services or it can refer to labor. Uh, uh, but consider, for example, Walmart. Some people say that Walmart is a monopsonist or something close to a monopsonist. It's a huge buyer. And so the people who sell to uh, Walmart, the um, suppliers, uh, they're facing, you know, effectively one very large buyer. And uh, Walmart can use its market power against the buyers to suppress the prices that they pay below the competitive rate. And that's, although that sounds good, it, it's actually bad because if uh, the suppliers are, are being forced to pay to uh, accept lower than the competitive rate, they'll produce less output, which means less economic growth and higher prices. Uh, Walmart will do well, as, as uh, monopolists and monopsonists always do. They'll make high profits, but there'll be fewer sales ultimately uh, to consumers. Now, labor monopsony is just a monopsony where the sellers are people selling their labor rather than firms uh, selling goods and services. And the same idea applies. So the employer is buying labor from its workers. And um, if there's just a single employer in a, in, a, in, a, in a market, let's say in a town, there's just a single employer, the employer can um, offer wages that are below uh, what the competitive wage, the, 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 which is usually thought to be the amount that you have to pay a worker uh, that's equal to how much the worker actually contributes in value to the uh, employer. If you suppress wages below that amount, then some people will not work. They'll stay out of the workforce. Um, they might take other jobs that they're not as suitable for. Um, and so this results in not only lower wages, but less economic output. So it's a problem both for equality uh, in the sense that um, labor monopsony should lead to higher uh, inequality um, between people who live through wages and people who live off investments, but it also will reduce economic uh, output and, and economic growth. Um, it's really a very similar concept. And economists have you know, understood that monopsony is just as bad as monopoly you know, since Adam Smith, who, who wrote about employer uh, monopsonies. It, it, uh, this is probably an oversimplification, but at least in terms of first order effects, it seems like monopolies tend to, uh, sorry, monopsonies tend to actually help consumers, at least initially, uh, by lowering prices, whereas monopolies tend to hurt consumers in terms of prices. And I, and I know that issue of kind of consumer harm in prices, that's kind of a contentious issue in antitrust, uh, how we interpret interpret uh, harm and so forth. But is that kind of a rough distinction that we can make between sort of the primary targets, or is that just too oversimplistic or too, bro or too broad? Yeah, it's not. It's not. Uh, accurate, um, and, and this is very common misconception people have. So, so it's important to, uh, to be clear about it. So, yes, the first order effect of a monopoly is to raise uh, prices for consumers. The first order effect of a monopsony is to um, reduce wages. Okay, and of course, people are both workers and consumers, 
So there's a first order harm to ordinary people in both cases. You know, if prices are high, that's bad. If your wages are low, that's bad. It's, it's bad from a social standpoint. But it, it's not true that um, monopsony, monopsony will, will result in lower prices in an immediate sense. Um, and the reason is that if an employer is paying <clears throat> its workers less, it hires fewer workers. And if fewer workers are higher, then the employer's output will be lower. And then this is just your supply and demand curve. If output is lower, then prices are going to be higher. Now, now it's a little bit more complicated than that because if the employer faces competition in the product market, um, you know, it will sell less, but other firms may make up the difference. Like foreign, you know, foreign firms that you know don't have monopsony power, they'll, they'll just increase their output. So ultimately, a consumer might not be affected at all. Um, or the consumer might be affected a little bit or, or a lot. It all depends on the market structure on the product side. But um, there's no doubt that from, you know, just kind of a standard, you know, simple economic framework or social welfare framework, that the first order impact of monopsony is to reduce the well-being of people. Generally, there's no offsetting benefit except to the shareholders. The shareholders make higher profits which is true in the case of monopoly as well. But those benefits are less than the costs to uh, consumers and workers. Yeah, I'm glad you I'm glad you uh, explained that, because I think, as you pointed out, that is sort of a, a common misconception. And kind of moving on from that, I want to talk about measurement issues, because this is as you, you go into in length in the book, this can really be difficult. I think we all get a sense of how you measure monopoly power. You can look at the percentage of searches done, say, by from Google or Bing or something like that and, and get a sense of that. But measuring monopsony or labor market concentration, it seems to me to be a less straightforward concept. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's fair to say, although I think partly... Um, what's going on here is that economists have been figuring out ways to measure uh, market power and product markets, you know, for, for really a century or more. And so a kind of consensus has uh, emerged about how to do that, whereas economists have not really been focused on labor market concentration. And so, you know, people who are writing about labor market concentration today are drawing on what economists have done for product markets, but it, it's a work in progress. But just to explain, you know, how this is done. In, in the product market side, there are kind of, you know, two basic ways of measuring market power. And so market power, we mean a monopolist has, you know, a huge amount of market power. It has the power to raise wages, sorry, raise prices above what the competitive price would be in a competitive market. If you have a competitive market, nobody has market power. And, you know, market power can be anywhere from, you know, 100% to zero, depending on whether you have a monopoly or a, a competitive market or something in between. Now, everything is in between in the real world. And so it's important to have a measurement. And one way to measure things is just to take, uh, let's say, the top four firms in the market, identify the four biggest firms, and add up their market share. So if you've got, let's say, four, the four biggest firms all have 20% of the market, 
then uh, you say the top four firms have 80%. And if the top four firms uh, have only, let's say, 2% of the market, then uh, the top four firms have 8%. And so if you know the index is 8%, you have a pretty competitive market. If it's 80%, it's a pretty concentrated market. And so the antitrust authorities, the regulators, and the courts will look at that number. And if the number is high, they'll say, okay, there may be a problem here. We have to do further analysis. If the number is low, they say this is not a problem. The other uh, more standard method these days for measuring market concentration is called the Herfindahl-Hirschman Index. It's it's a very similar idea, except you give additional weight when um, a firm is is especially big. So under the uh, Herfindahl-Hirschman Index, if you've got a single firm with 80% of the market and a bunch of small firms, the number will be harder, will be higher than if you have four firms with 20% of the market. And that's just because, um, you know, a single dominant player is, uh, is really going to have more market power. It's going to be able to suppress prices more than if you have a bunch of large players who can kind of coordinate with each other, but uh, there will be slippage. We turn from, uh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, please go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So as we turn from, you know, monopoly to monopsony, uh, people have been using very similar measures, uh, like the, the Herfindahl-Hirschman index, you, you could use it. So first you have to define what the market is. And so a labor market, you know, very, this is kind of rough, but basically we look at the distance that people are willing to commute. So um, this could be, you know, five miles, 10 miles, 20 miles, depending on the location. But let's suppose it's a big city. We might say the commuting zone is the big city. Then we have to identify the particular job. So let's suppose the job is accountant. Okay, so we might have in a big city, I don't know, several thousand people who are accountants. They're trained. They're the sort of people who will be hired by an accounting firm or or another firm that needs an accountant. And then we look at the firms that hire accountants. And probably the biggest employers of accountants will be accounting firms. And uh, and they'll have a share of the of the supply of accountants. So it's possible that there could be a single big accounting firm that hires eighty percent that employs eighty percent of the accountants in this market. Or there might be you know no big accounting firm, but lots of companies that need an accountant. In which case, uh, maybe the biggest company only has two percent of the accountants in the area. And then you can use uh, you know, either the four-firm the four concentration ratio or the Herfindahl-Hirschman index to come up with a number. And again, it's basically a percentage from zero to 100, or the, the Herfindahl-Hirschman index is actually from zero to 10,000 for obscure reasons. But basically, the higher the number, the more concentrated. Um, and, and the reason why these concentration measures are used is that there's empirical evidence that as the number is higher... Uh, you get either higher prices in a product market or lower wages in a labor market. And and when we compare those those index uh, those indexes with uh, labor and product markets, it it surprised me at least that labor markets are actually there's a lot more of a problem with with that sort of market power and concentration, and that's in part or in large part due to the fact that as you point out those those labor markets tend to be local as opposed to national, right? Yes, exactly. And, you know, this is a really fascinating, you know, um, point, maybe from the point from the perspective of the sociology of knowledge. I mean, economists have always known that labor markets can be concentrated, but they they always assumed that they were not concentrated. And most economists assumed 
If you looked at if you looked at economics textbooks from not long ago, they would just say labor markets are competitive, unlike many product markets, you know, like airlines or whatever. And I think the reason why is people were just thinking, you, you know, we live in the most most economists, you know, live in cities or towns or and there are lots of people around, you know. And so if you work at a McDonald's, uh, you know, there are a lot of fast food places you can work at. And if you're a lawyer, there are a lot of law firms and and so they kind of just assumed that uh, labor markets are competitive. And this all changed when uh, a few papers were, were posted and now published a couple of years ago that uh, examined all the labor markets in the country in a much more rigorous way. When you think about it, and as you mentioned, these papers found that, you know, a huge number of labor markets are incredibly concentrated, far more than, far more concentrated than, you know, most product markets are. And, and when you think about it, it, it's actually not that complicated. You know, a big part of the country is rural, suburban, small towns. In those places, you know, there are not that many employers. And if you have a, if you have specialized skills, you know, if you're an accountant in a small town or a rural area, there are probably very few employers that uh, will want to hire you. Maybe there's a local Walmart, but, you know, the fast food joints aren't going to want to hire you. They don't need an accountant. So you have very few choice, few choices. There are very few employers. And even in big cities, you know, a lot of people are, are very specialized. So if you're, uh, you know, you're a pediatric oncologist, I'm sure that um, there are some big cities where there are lots of hospitals that are going to employ you. But in smaller towns, uh, there may be, you know, just one uh, realistic uh, uh, employer. And so, yes, it turns out that, uh, you know, a huge fraction of labor markets are extremely highly concentrated. And, you know, also along with this idea of local labor markets, it seems to me that this affects the incentive structure for bringing these suits. Uh, As you point out in in the book, product markets tend to be national. And so they're perhaps better targets for attorneys who need resources to bring these suits. But whereas even if you're looking for, was it uh, uh, a triple damages under, under, I believe the one, what Sherman or the, the Clayton, you would know that that's still a fairly small pool, and so it might be difficult to get attorneys to actually take on some of these cases, even if they can certify uh, a class. Is that, is that right? Yes. So the yeah, I mean, product markets are frequently national. Of course, they're not always national. Like uh, you know, the market for groceries is a local market. Although Amazon is kind of changing that a bit, but basically, uh, but but you know, most consumer goods are, are national markets. Uh, all the goods that you buy on Amazon, those are those are na- they're, they're national markets, automobiles, you know, search engines. And so national markets are are good targets for uh, not just private litigators, but uh, the government, uh, the Justice Department and the FTC, which which also enforce the antitrust laws. They're, they're bigger targets. There's more at stake there. It's kind of easy. It's easier to bring these cases because um, you're looking at some single big firm that has uh, possibly engaged in anti-competitive behavior. And then in the case of um, private lawyers, they can create a consumer class consisting of everybody in the country who's bought the product. And so consumer classes can easily have millions or even tens of millions of people. And that means that, um, you know, even if the actual harm is relatively small, $10, $100, $1,000 per person, you multiply that out through this consumer class, it's a very large uh, number. And so that number will be large enough to cover the costs and risks that private attorneys 
incur when they bring antitrust cases, which are notoriously expensive and, and, and complicated. And when you switch to labor markets, you know, it's not like that at all. Most labor markets are local. You know, you can think of there are few that are national, like maybe the market for CEO or certain very highly skilled uh, positions. But most labor markets are local. You know, people are not don't move, uh, you know, just for work. Usually they uh, they live somewhere and they're going to look for a job uh, within a commuting distance. And that means that a class action brought by an empl- uh, a lawyer on behalf of uh, workers who have been the victims of uh, monopsony, it's going to the class is going to have maybe a few hundred, a few thousand, ten thousand people, and it's something like that. Uh, now the the damages per person might be higher because we're talking about someone's salary of fifty thousand or hundred thousand or two hundred thousand dollars, maybe being reduced by five or ten. For 20%, but you still have much lower numbers. So the the ultimate uh, award is going to be relatively low. And as a result, um, uh, uh, there's going to be, um, you know, not, there, there's going to be um, uh, well, less of an incentive for lawyers to bring these cases. A final point is that a lot of the victims of monopsony are actually low skill workers. Um, there's some litigation right now going on against McDonald's and other of the big franchises who employ people in their restaurants at low wages. And, you know, if those wages were suppressed, it's going to be, from the standpoint of a class action lawyer, a relatively small number and possibly not enough to, to justify litigation. But even considering that uh, those incentives or lack of incentives, it was really kind of stunning to me how the the gap between claims that are filed based on you know, monopoly or product versus labor market uh, concentration. You mentioned at one point, and this I just I like triple underlined this when I was reading the book, that in your research, you weren't able to locate a single monopsony, monopsony claim under Section 2 of the, of the Sherman Act that made it past the summary judgment stage. And that just that just kind of stopped me in, in, in my tracks. And I thought that's worthy of, of discussing because there are a lot of reasons you talk about why that is the case and how courts in why courts sort of dismiss these things literally and so why is it uh, what, what do you see the main reasons as making the case that there is illegal wage collusion uh going on here right and just to be clear so in that sentence i was referring to uh, a case against you know analogous to the microsoft case or the standard oil case we have a single uh, employer, um, there have been uh, there has been a little bit more success under Section One uh, against uh, which alleges collusion. For example, I'm sure you're familiar with the NCAA cases. There are cases. There have been a bunch of cases against um, sports leagues, which have been you know more or less successful. And, and there have been a few others involving mergers and uh, no poaching in the high tech industry and so forth. But yes, the bottom line is no successful Section 2 cases and a very small number of successful Section 1 cases, whereas, you know, every year there are hundreds of, you know, reasonably successful product market cases. So what's the reason for that? I think, you know, the odd thing is I think a big part of the reason is simply that um, people didn't realize that uh, labor markets are um, are often um, – subject to collusion, that they're often not competitive. 
which is actually bizarre when you think about it. In the Wealth of Nations, you know, Adam Smith uh, talks about um, employer collusion, and he says it happens all the time, but no one ever talks about it. Uh, uh, he literally says that, and 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 he says, in fact, you know, the workers usually, you know, they grumble, but they can't do anything about it. And uh, whereas people, and he was also saying, people get really angry when workers in the 18th century, when workers uh, unionize, form, you know, the equivalent of a union, but they don't seem to care or notice when employers do the same thing. You know, why is that? And, uh, you know, maybe that employers are more powerful, more sophisticated, more subtle. But I think, you know, part of the reason is that there's just this ideological gap uh, just in antitrust law depends very heavily on the understanding of economists and economists just didn't think about this. Um, another key part of the explanation is that in the old days, unions uh, were important in trying in, in um, consolidating or aggregating the market power of workers to oppose the monopsony power of employers. And I think for a long time, people just thought, well, that's what unions do. We don't need antitrust law for it. Um, and, uh, you know, that may well have been true, but unions have been declining over the last, you know, half century or more. So it, to the extent that unions were able to oppose labor monopsony, uh, they, they, no longer, uh, they no longer can. And then, you know, uh, there's just something about the law. There's a lot of path dependency in the law. It, the, you know, the more antitrust cases or cases of any kind that are brought, the easier it is to bring those cases uh, in the future, you know, everybody knows the rules. When uh, plaintiffs' lawyers threaten, or the Justice Department threatens to sue um, antitrust violators, violators, the violators will settle if they know that they've violated the law. Usually, and if not, you know, the case will proceed. There have been so few. Although there was a Supreme Court case in the 1920s that recognized a uh, an employer wage fixing claim. They just, you know, never got started, and I think part of it is, as I said before, you know, because of this general understanding, few cases were brought, and then on top of that, because so few cases are brought, there's not the people don't know what the rules are, and that adds to the risk and cost of of litigators, so that they'll be even more reluctant to um, bring these cases. You know, the problem, of course, is that if you know if your CEO firms, you know, if the firms are rational rational profit maximizers, as, as economists assume. And they know that if they engage in product-side anti-competitive behavior, there's a good chance they'll be sued. Whereas if they engage in labor-side anti-competitive behavior, there's effectively no chance that they're going to be sued. They're basically going to orient their anti-competitive behavior to labor markets rather than product markets. And so, you know, there could be a, a very serious problem here as a result of this uh, lapse in antitrust enforcement. But it also seems to me that there are what I might call measurement issues involved in uh, in making these claims about uh, about labor market uh, driving down those prices, because even if we have access to salary data, which oftentimes we don't, which we do with products for the most part, there are so many things that an employer can argue go into compensation. Right. It's not the bot just the bottom line wage, but, you know, benefits, health care, other things, even more intangible things like commute length or if you can work from home, uh, workplace culture stuff, these things have real value, but it's awful tough to kind of compare them. And so I was wondering how much of a problem do you think those sort of measurement issues are when attempting to argue that employers are 
are essentially artificially driving down driving down compensation? It's definitely a problem. You know, I'm not sure if this it's it's a problem that has prevented the emergence of labor antitrust cases. It's like you know we haven't even gotten that far, and 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 typically settle. You know, if you if if you can make it like a reasonable case. You know, I think it will be more of a problem in the future as more of these cases are brought. Now, to some extent, there's a similar problem for product markets. You know, if a particular product, you know, as they say, as economists say, the, the substitutes are not perfect, um, then uh, you have similar, you know, similar um, uh, considerations. So as, as an example, you know, you could have uh, different cars at different prices, but some are low quality and some are high quality. And, and, you know, in order to award damages, you're going to have to adjust for quality um, so that you're comparing apples to apples. Now, for some products, that's really easy because they're identical. Like if there was a case, you know, against, I don't know, light bulb manufacturers or something like that, all light bulbs are basically the same. But, you know, there are other types of um, products where there's, there's subtle variations. Insurance policies, for example, Insurance companies might have different kinds of service and, or think of just like a search engine. You know, what's the difference between Bing and Google? Google's maybe slightly better, a lot better. So if, you know, Bing, if, if Microsoft, which operates Bing and, and Google entered into a cartel, you, you know, you kind of have to figure out that stuff as well. You'd have to have the quality adjusted. You'd have to have the quality. In fact, a lot of what's interesting in, the, in a lot of the uh, tech litigation is that the, you know, Facebook, for example, gives away its interface to, for free to consumers. And so you could argue, like, what's your antitrust claim if the price is zero? A lot of people think, of course, that Facebook has a monopoly, including the FTC. But, you know, how could you sue for damages? Well, the argument is, well, people are getting bombarded with ads that they don't like. Their data is being taken from them in ways that they don't approve of. You can think of that as low quality. And if a successful antitrust claim brought by consumers against uh, Facebook ever takes place, you know, those sorts of issues are going to have to be addressed. I mean, the law can deal with these things. It does make everything a lot more complicated and risky. So I do think these complications do play some role in deterring um, litigators from uh, bringing antitrust labor cases, but probably just at the margin. Another issue, it seems to me, is earlier you talked about, you know, the market for, say, local market for, say, accountants or doctors. But as you pointed out with the doctors, you know, that's doctor isn't just a job, a generic job. There are all sorts of, you know, subspecialties and things like that, because even jobs with the same title aren't necessarily interchangeable. And it seems to me that what an employer is likely to do is to try to argue that the labor market should be defined well as broadly as possible to argue that, well, there's no concentration because people can find another job in this market. And is that is that a significant issue or will do you think it will be a significant issue going forward or not so much? Uh, yeah, it is a significant issue. You, you get, again, you get the same issue in product markets. Uh, you know, is the market for, you know, is, is the correct market all vehicles or, you know, just cars versus light trucks or economy cars versus luxury cars? And there's that same incentive on the part of the seller to define the market as broadly as possible. And there, you know, there, there are economic or econometric methods for figuring out uh, the market definition. 
But as you point out, this is a bit more difficult problem in at least most labor markets. I mean, some labor markets, the people are pretty interchangeable. I mean, the jobs are designed that way. But um, in the case of doctors, I, I'm pretty sure, you know, the proper market is going to be fairly narrow. It's not going to be doctors in general. It might be oncologists or pediatric oncologists or senior versus junior pediatric oncologists or, you know, there are all kinds of, uh, of, of complications. And, you know, there are limits to antitrust law, and those limits will probably um, play a larger role in labor market antitrust law than product market antitrust law. Another distinction that seems to me to be important is sort of the issue of what I would call friction, because with products, there's often with most products, at least there's not a lot, there's not a lot of friction involved for the consumer switching from one to another for various reasons. Sometimes it's just like clicking a different button on, you know, on Amazon or on your phone or something like that. But with jobs, it's it's very different. And you talk about this uh, in the book that switching jobs can be fairly involved and uh, that can have a tendency, right, to keep people in jobs even when they're being underpaid, where in a reverse scenario, when if you feel like you're paying too much for a product, well, it's a lot easier to switch. And that can be a, a significant problem, right? Yes, it can. And, and you know, again, this is, this is more a difference of degree rather than kind, but, but it is an important difference in degree and is another problem with um, labor-side antitrust litigation. But, you know, on the product market side, there's a similar problem. I mean, um, for example, Amazon's a good example. It's very easy to switch among brands that are sold on Amazon, but it's kind of hard to switch from Amazon to whoever its competitor is. You know, once you have Amazon Prime and, you know, you think you're getting and, you know, and then they give you try to give you rewards and stuff like that. Uh, personally, I found it very difficult to switch among credit cards and insurance companies. There, you know, there are a lot of uh, more sort of more complicated services where you, you know they get your data and they know a lot about you and they kind of make things easy for you, so you don't want to switch. But that also gives them uh, market power over you, which which you may not be able to understand. Okay, but that you're absolutely right in uh, in jobs and particularly jobs that are complicated. Um, uh, and uh, often, you know, I think it's very common in, uh, in the labor market that people over time engage in what economists call uh, relationship-specific investments in their, in their jobs. That is, they get to know the people there, they get to know um, the, you know, the management and how things are done, the customs, the subtle um, unstated rules. The, the commute is convenient. Maybe they buy their house so that it's a convenient commute. You know, all of these things can cause people to be stuck in a job. And, and, you know, to the extent that that causes people to be stuck in the job, then the it's not illegal for the employer to suppress their wages relative to, you know, what their value is for the firm. Um, you know, it's not good, but the, I think the consensus is there's not a whole lot that the that antitrust law can do about that, or maybe even uh, uh, the law generally. But again, you know, you know, these are things that in antitrust litigation can be handled. Economists can measure these costs. They can kind of subtract them out when they do their ultimate calculation of, of the damages that uh, the, uh, the workers sustain as a result of any anti-competitive uh, conduct. So again, a big problem but maybe one that can be handled in practice. Earlier, you mentioned non-compete agreements. I want to talk about those because it seems to me 
there you can make a legitimate case for them sometimes, but they can also be abused if they're used as kind of a way to suppress wages or lock people into jobs. And and you mentioned the, the now I think almost infamous case of Jimmy Johns. And I think you can maybe talk a little bit about the use and abuse of non-competes and how this all fits into to what we've been talking about. So a non-compete is an agreement between a worker and the employer, according to which after the worker leaves the job, the worker is not allowed to um, work for a competitor of the employer for a certain period of time within a defined geographic scope. So in the case of Jimmy John's, the workers in question were low-skill sandwich makers, who I think they called their sandwich artists. And the sandwich artists, um, you know, when they, when they started working for Jimmy John's, they signed a contract, which they may or may not have read, who knows, or they may or may not have understood. And the contract said, you know, you're working for us. And when you leave Jimmy John's, you're not allowed to work for um, another, another business that makes sandwiches, basically. Uh, so maybe that's McDonald's, maybe that's Subway. Uh, within, I forget the exact, I think it was like six miles or something like that for, and again, I don't remember the exact amount of time. It may have been a year or six months or two years. That's kind of standard for non-competes. That one of the twists here was that um, normally the non-compete just says you can't work within X miles of your current employer. But this one actually said you can't work within six miles or 10 miles of any Jimmy John's anywhere in the country. And there's John's but that basically blotted out, you know, most of the country. So, you know, even if you were in, you know, New York and you're planning to move to California, you could find out that now that you live in San Francisco or L.A., you can't work for any company that makes sandwiches, any business that makes sandwiches for several months. Now, um, <clears throat> non-competes, you know, they've been around for hundreds of years. Um, the traditional view of them is that they're restraints of illegal restraints of trade. That was true before antitrust law. That was true in the common law um, before the Sherman Act of 1890. And so, of course, would not enforce them if the courts thought they were excessively strict, which was never defined very clearly. But the basic understanding was, you know, in certain circumstances, they made sense. So, for example, if you hire someone to be a salesman to sell your goods, in a certain area, and you give the salesman your proprietary customer list so that he now knows this, you know, he basically has access to this information that you built up over years. And if he quits and goes and works for your competitor, now, you know, your competitor can basically use your, you know, your investment in this customer list to take away your customers. And so you're allowed, you, the employer, were allowed to say to the salesperson, you know, I'm going to hire you only if you agree to this non-compete. And even then, the courts would say the non-compete has to be tailored to the problem. So, you know, if the customer list is going to um, depreciate over six months uh, because people come and go, then your covenant not to compete can't be longer than six months. And if the area in which you sell these goods is just, you know, this county, then the covenant not to compete can't extend to the entire state or, or the whole country. So, you know, there's this whole background going on. and so. You know, the basic idea is that uh, an employer might have trade secrets, customer lists, other sort of proprietary information. And if it's workers who learn that information can easily do easily go to a competitor, that will undermine the incentives of employers to uh, invest in obtaining in this information in the first place. Um, but that's usually the defense of non-competes. 
sometimes people also argue that it might protect uh, an employer's investment in training workers because if you, if you spend a lot of mon- money training your worker and then the worker just quits and goes working goes and works for your competitor, you basically trained one of your competitors' workers. So people aren't going to want to do, do that either. Now, oh, sounds plausible. There's a lot of criticism of that because um, it's not entirely clear that you need non-competes to protect investments of this sort. In California, famously, non-competes are illegal, and yet California is the most innovative state in the, in the country. But all that said, you know, from an antitrust perspective, a non-compete is a restraint of trade. You know, it basically says um, uh, it, it's basically a way to prevent your competitor from hiring your employees. And so it should be uh, at least subject to antitrust law. And while people have brought antitrust cases based on non-competes in the past, they always lose, virtually always lose, um, for, a variety, uh, for, uh, for a variety of reasons. Let me just say one more thing. Covenants not to compete have been in the news lately, not just because of Jimmy Johns, but because of the uh, research of people like Evan Starr at the University of Maryland. And Starr has shown that, you know, even if you believe the theory that non-competes might be a useful way, you know, appropriate way for an employer to protect proprietary information, they've gotten so common that it's hard to believe that that's really true. So I think he, he found that 40% of all workers have at one time or another been subject to a non-compete. And that includes a huge number of millions of you know, low-skill workers who, who you know, it's very hard to believe have any serious um, uh, you know, knowledge of, of true trade secrets. Uh, certainly the sandwich workers at Jimmy John's didn't, didn't have any proprietary information they knew how to make a sandwich but you know that's that's not going to be a, a trade trade secret so this does the employers are abusing non-competes they're just sort of automatically putting them into contracts without thinking very much about whether it's appropriate and and that's going to reduce labor market mobility and reduce wages and raise prices right I wonder how much of the how much of a problem is the fact that in many of these agreements that employees sign, there's also a stipulation that they have to uh, they have to go to arbitration as opposed to taking things to the courts. I mean, that's that's fairly standard for a lot of these agreements. And so do you see this as being uh, an important issue or or a problem in terms of getting these things, you know, heard and, and moving forward on this issue? Yeah, it's definitely a problem. It's it's part of a larger problem. Um, firms have been using arbitration to protect themselves from class actions, um, including antitrust class actions. And um, so, you know, just to back up a little bit here, ar- arbitration in principle is a good thing because, you know, if you're a worker at Jimmy John's and they tell you you can't work for a competitor, you're not going to bring a lawsuit. A lawsuit is way too expensive. So at least in principle, you know, if arbitration is available, arbitration can be extremely inexpensive. Of course, it depends. You know, that might be a nice way for the worker and the employer to resolve their disputes. And so there's an important policy in the United States of uh, promoting or protecting arbitration agreements. But over time, people have begun to realize that the reason why employers use arbitration agreements is that they can put in the arbitration agreement that, um, you know, you can't have, you know, class arbitration, nor, uh, and if you have to go to arbitration, you can't go to the courts. So if you can't go to the courts, you can't bring class actions. 
And so what people now believe, or many people believe, is that what's really going on is that the arbitration clause, whether it's in an employment contract or in a sales contract, is used to prevent um, uh, private lawyers from bringing class actions. So if they bring a class action, the court will dismiss and say, you've got to go to arbitration. And then you, what you can't, you almost always cannot bring your class action in an arbitration. You know, your 10 million class members have to each individually uh, do it, which is, you know, if the amount at stake is relatively little, you know, no one's going to do, do that. Um, so I'd like to see, you know, some progress uh, to rein in arbitration agreements when, when they're used in this way. What about no poaching agreements? There are some similarities maybe between that and non-compete. Uh, uh, can you talk about those? Because we've heard about that in, in relation to some tech companies agreements they've had, because it seems to me that if these agreement, agreements are informal or at least unwritten, they can be pretty difficult to, to demonstrate, to, to substantiate. And so can you talk about how important or how big of an issue these sort of agreements are in, in this area? Yeah, I think they're quite important. So the, the tech case you're referring to uh, was a, a lawsuit brought by the Justice Department against Google, Apple, and, you know, all the other big tech companies back in 2010, alleging that the basically the CEOs of the tech companies, including people like Steve Jobs, had agreed among each other not to poach or hire away um, uh, software engineers. So, for example, if you're at Google and there's a really great software engineer at um, at Apple, you might try to hire that person. But under this agreement, you just can't. Uh, the result of which is that wages will be suppressed because, you know, the person at Apple can't say to Jobs, if you don't give me a raise, I'm going to go to Google, since Jobs knows that Google isn't going to hire that person. So no poaching agreements, you know, in antitrust law, they're called horizontal agreements. They're relatively easy to litigate as long as you can prove an agreement. If companies just kind of independently adopt a policy of not trying to hire away from their competitors, that's lawful. And that's just called parallelism. And so the problem for plaintiffs, including the government and also workers, is they, you know, they might get the sense that um Competitors are not hiring away workers, but they're not going to be able to stop that, they're not going to be able to bring a claim unless they actually have evidence of agreement. And that can sometimes be hard to get. Uh, now, in practice, if you can show circumstantial evidence of various types, like, you know, the CEOs, uh, you know, all met on July 1st and then beginning on July 2nd, Nobody was hired away from any other firm, whereas before they had, you know, that might be enough to get to allow the court for the plaintiffs to then use discovery to actually compel the defendant to send them emails and so forth. And then you're going to hope that in the emails you'll find um, the executives saying to each other, remember, we have this agreement not to poach each other's works. Yeah, it, it, um, it, it amazes me, I got to say, and you 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 referenced the case where I believe there were emails. It was, I think, uh, two academic medical centers and a, a, a no poaching agreement. And still the things that they actually put in these emails about, well, we can't hire them because it would cause wages to go up. It 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 sort of startles me, I guess, the extent to which people would incriminate themselves in that way. But maybe that goes back to your point about employers just not really being worried about these these suits being uh, being brought up in the first place. 
Yeah, I mean, definitely. There, there were no such suits, right? You know, so it may not have even, even have occurred, let's say, to the tech CEOs that they were breaking the law um, by making these agreements with each other. You know, they were not lawyers. They, they were tech people. Now, if they were responsible people, they should have consulted their lawyers, you know, their counsel. But my, I suspect the counsel would say, yeah, you know, that's against the law. But, you know, there's, there's never been a lawsuit, uh, period. You know, they're not going to advise them to break the law, but they might let them know that it's it's not enforced. And so the Justice Department um, and, and the FTC, after the tech case, sent a notice around the human resources offices and the corporations saying, you know, not only is this illegal, it's criminal. You know, it's criminal to get together and agree not to poach each other's workers. So you better stop. And in the last year or so, the Justice Department has actually brought some indictments against executives who have allegedly uh, used no poaching or wage fixing agreements. The case you're referring to um, was against Duke and the University of North Carolina. And it was it's an amazing case because basically you had a physician, I think she was a radiologist, you know, I forget which place she was at, but basically she was at one of the places and she applied for a job at the other place. And they said, you're terrific. You know, the chair of the department said, you're terrific. We'd really like to hire you. And then a little while later, he said, he sent her another email saying, oh, you know, I just learned from someone that we have this agreement between the two universities not to hire each other's workers. And then he goes on to explain, you know, the reason was a while back ago, you know, one university had poached various people from the other university and everybody was upset. So they entered into this agreement. Now, you know, this is an academic and, you know, typically academics are not very disciplined and you know, may not even know just to say certain things. But once this got out, you know, it was a pretty straightforward case. But, you know, that's not going to get out very often. Um, and that's a problem, right? So that's a problem for, for plaintiffs. So do you think this is more a case of we need a culture change and that we have the laws already on the books to, to, to go after this illegal activity? It's just a matter of actually doing it? And if so, then, I, I mean, culture is notoriously difficult to change. Uh, do you, how do you see this changing or do you see this changing in a significant way? I think it's partly, you know, a culture change that's needed and partly uh, maybe a legal and institutional change. So, yes, the law is already there. And in theory, it just has to be enforced. And I think the culture change has already begun. I mean, to their credit, the, the Justice Department and the FTC are taking seriously this academic research. And, you know, they, and also in light of the tech, you know, the tech uh, debacle or, you know, the no poaching tech agreement. You know, they're, they're, they realize there's a problem. They've been they've been uh, looking for cases and they've been bringing cases, and you know the law is on their side. So uh, I think you know making the cultural change is actually not that hard. I also think that economists, it's a little hard to tell at this point, but I, I think you know there are a group of labor economists who, who've done this research, and I think the the more specialized antitrust economists are going to be sympathetic to it. Um, so, so I do think the culture will change. I think the problem are the courts. The courts um, are, have been hostile, especially the Supreme Court, but the lower courts under the lead of the Supreme Court have been increasingly hostile to antitrust law on the product market side, any antitrust law over the last 40 or 50 years. And, you know, so, so antitrust law has become narrower progressively. And I think it's going to be hard for courts to kind of reverse gears and recognize this new major type of litigation. 
Um, I don't think they're, they're going to say, you know, workers cannot bring cases that, that, you know, that's foreclosed by earlier precedent. But we've already seen a bunch of cases. Um, and the judges are, I wouldn't say hostile, but they're skeptical. And there's confusion. Uh, we talked earlier about, you know, what a labor market means. There's all kinds of confusion. There's problems about class actions. Judges have a lot of discretion. And so if, if they just feel like, you know, this is not a serious case, uh, they're, they're going to be a little harder nosed about applying um, some of these uh, strict uh, rules. I judges need to be nudged. And so I do think that uh, legislation is appropriate. Um, but, uh, you know, I also think in the long term, in the long term, one way or the other, I'm, I'm optimistic that this will be a major new uh, type of antitrust litigation. Well, on that optimistic note, we will close. And I just want to thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me today. It's my pleasure. That, that was a lot of fun. Thank, thank you for having me on. That's it for today's show. We hope you like what you heard. If you'd like a second full-length Politics Guys episode every single week, as opposed to just these occasional interviews, you can get that by becoming a Patreon supporter. Supporters also get ad-free versions of every episode, as well as other good stuff. To get the details and to become a supporter, just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. And if you can't afford to become a supporter, to email me at mike at politicsguys.com and I will get you full access to that second episode every single week. And if being a monthly supporter is too much of a commitment, but you still like to help us out occasionally, you can do that too through PayPal. You'll find the link on our website, politicsguys.com slash support. And if you haven't already subscribed to the show, that is a big help as well as leaving ratings and reviews and especially sharing your favorite episodes on social media. That's a big deal to us. And if you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, or whatever, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. For more great discussions, check out our bipartisan politics subreddit. You'll find the URL in the show notes. We've also got a Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And we're on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, and Chris Wilkerson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us.